We are currently in the second week of a series on Genesis. Last week, we, we kicked it off by spending some time in Genesis 1, the first part of Genesis 2, this, uh, this creation litany um, as a transliterated uh, paraphrase by our friend Eugene Peterson. By friend, I mean uh, fantastic uh, leader in the church during this last um, uh, uh, during my generation. And um, uh, w- then we, we jumped to the end of the story. We looked at Revelations. And, and today we're going to spend some time uh, still in Genesis chapter 1. So we're going to pick up some speed here next week. We'll be on G- Genesis chapter 2. Uh, but today I wanted to first spend some time uh, sitting with a really important passage in Genesis 1, a, a passage that's very relevant for our world today. And the reason is simple. These verses that we're going to look at are um, profound uh, foundational verses related to our understanding of God and our understanding of ourselves and our understanding of other people. You know, the, the great commandment that Jesus said, if I wanted to summarize all of, of the scriptures of the law and the prophets, if I want to summarize it all, uh, they'd be summarized by a command to love God and love others. And uh, that loving others part can be traced back to these verses in the first chapter of Genesis. So if you have your Bible, you could go to it, uh, Genesis chapter 1, and uh, you can find that uh, um, pretty easily by just opening the, the front of your book, uh, go past the table of contents, and you'll be there. Genesis 1, very beginning of, of the Bible, and uh, go to verse chapter uh, 26. So as you go there, uh, let me remind you where we're at in the story. In this beautiful, poetic way, we see... Um, this picture of the heavens and earth um, growing out of nothing, a, a dance of God separating one thing from another and filling the world with all the beauty of nature, uh, plants and sea creatures and animals, etc. Near the end of this process, we see the formation of humans. So here it is, Genesis 1, starting with verse 26 uh, through uh, 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 27. It says this. Then God said, let us make humankind... In our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Let's pray. God, we uh, ask that you would bless the reading of your word, that you'd make uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, that you'd remind us that you are our rock and our salvation. Come and meet us, speak to us. And Lord, whatever I say, may you speak to whoever is listening right now or who's driving and listening to the podcast later, or watching the live stream at a later, whoever is listening right now, Lord, speak to them, regardless of what I have to say. Meet us in this holy moment. In your name, amen. I want to jump back to verse 26, and I want to look at how it unfolds. I'm going to spend a ridiculous amount of time on on a couple of phrases. Uh, That's what we're going to do today, so FYI. Uh, Genesis 1.26 starts like this. It says, Then God said... Let us make humankind in our image. Here's the interesting thing about this. We see in the creation narrative, the creation narrative, a shift that takes place. Up to this point, each element of creation used a very simple wording, and it was simply, let 
there be. Let there be light. Let there be living creatures. Let there be uh, sea creatures. Let there be plants. Uh, Let there be was the way in which the creation narrative sort of rolled out this picture of the world. But in verse 26, the language changes. And whenever this happens in Scripture, we have to pause. We have to say, okay, what's going on here? What is God trying to say by this shift in the narrative? And so instead of saying, let there be, verse 26 says this, let us make humankind in our image. It goes from the the sort of singular to the plural. Now, there's a couple different ways that, that this has been interpreted. Uh, the, the most uh, way that I was kind of grew up hearing was this idea that, that even in the first chapter of Genesis, we get a glimpse of the Trinity. Uh, we as Christians, uh, not necessarily true uh, entirely in the Hebrew faith, but uh, Christian theology is this belief that we believe God is one, um, but that God is also three in this sort of paradoxical, mysterious way, and that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, a liturgy that has been in the early church since the beginning of the early church, and we still say it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, so a lot of people read that into the first chapter of Genesis and say, okay, up to this point with the creation of humankind, now we're, we're talking in plural to represent the Trinity. The, the other thought, and, and it's a, maybe a slightly more critical thought, is, you know, Genesis wasn't written for Christians originally. It was written in the Hebrew faith, and so what might be more Uh, appropriate is to understand this shift to the plural, let us create humans as what they call a royal we, where you're so important you refer to yourself in the plural to accentuate sort of your importance. And I've heard that study as well, but I, uh, I was reading on this and studying one of my favorite commentaries, the International uh, Biblical Commentary, um, and, uh, and it said those were maybe Maybe there's something bigger going on here. And uh, so it suggested, and I think this is really fascinating, that, um, that even though we have understandings of the Trinity being present, um, that there was something more beautiful going on than even that. In Scripture, we get this sense, as we kind of peel back the Genesis story and we look at the rest of Scripture, we get a sense that um, Scripture suggests that there are a lot of different agents present and working in the creation narrative that that Genesis doesn't tell us about. We get the sense, certainly the Trinity, uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. That's in verse 1. Um, we see it other places as well. We get the sense that even Jesus, the early church, firmly believed that Jesus, the Christ, was in some mysterious way present at creation. If you're following along with our reading plan uh, that we, uh, we sent out some postcards, uh, um, if you got those, I hope you did, um, Colossians 1 talks about this. It talks about how Jesus was there at the beginning and not only participated in creation, but holds all of creation together. John chapter 1 says the same thing. The word became, uh, was with God there at the beginning and nothing was made outside of it. But there's other things going on that I find really interesting interesting as well. Proverbs 8, for example, one of our our readings, uh, it it, it talks about how wisdom is present at creation. And and more specifically, the personification of wisdom, which in Proverbs is this beautiful woman you're meant to fall in love with, um, speaking specifically to a young man in that book. Um, uh, Personification of wisdom is present at creation. Proverbs 8, 29 to 30 says this. uh, It says, when he marked out the foundations of the earth... Then I was beside him. 
like a master worker. It's this idea that wisdom was present, working with God in the creation. And, and, and the wisdom goes on to say, And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the human race. We get this picture that wisdom, this personification of wisdom, was not only present at creation, but like really enjoying it. You know, like, oh man, God, that was so cool, and, and that was really great, and just looking at how it kind of unfolded and be like, oh, this was, this was so much fun. That's the picture we get in Proverbs 8 of this personification of wisdom. But this isn't the only passage like this, suggesting that there were other things at present in creation. My favorite is found in Job. It's, it's one of the uh, most rich uh, passages that include a creation litany. If you're looking for another creation story or litany in the Bible, Job has one. Um, Job, if you don't know somebody, it's an old story that's as relevant today as when it was written thousands of years ago, and it's about someone who really suffered. And ask the question we all ask or ask when we see people suffer. is like, why is this happening? More specifically, why is this happening to somebody who's good, who, who really didn't do anything to deserve this? And that's Job's question. And the problem with Job is we don't like the answer God gives. God basically tells Job, he doesn't answer his question other than to say, who are you to ask this? You weren't there when it all started. That's, that's the answer uh, God gives. He doesn't give it as simply as that. What God does is he lays out in his response this beautiful chapter, a couple chapters, I, I, I can't remember now, but it's, it's a long passage that lays out, here's all the things I created, and you weren't there when any of it was happening. So who are you to challenge me? You don't get it, Job, and you can't even begin to comprehend the complexity of this thing that I've created. And it's in that context that God says this to Job in Job 38, chapter 7. If, if you want to read the rest of the passage, I encourage it, uh, commend it to you, Job chapter 38. But in verse 7, it says, you know, were you there, Job, while the morning stars sang in unison and all the divine beings shouted? The word for shouted here suggests joy. Um, and the divine beings can be is translated in other translations as angels, but it's this picture that at creation there were these divine beings present. And once again, like wisdom, they're watching God unfold this creation, and they're just like, this is amazing. I say all of this to say this. As we look at the idea of the Trinity, as we look at the personification of wisdom, or even angels or divine beings, we're given in picture this idea that when God was creating, God was creating with an audience. That there were people or things or entities or ideas present, and God was creating with this audience watching. And we don't know what is meant when God said, let us create but God could have meant any of those divine beings that are compared in Psalms chapter 8 to be similar to humans or, or the Trinity or the Holy Spirit. But what we do know is that in verse 26, when it comes to creating human, humanity, God says, let us. It's almost as if, and I want to play with this just for a second, it's almost as if God's like, okay, let's do this, uh, plants, animals, stars, got it. And then when it comes to the idea of humanity who are going to be in the likeness of God, even in the likeness of divine beings, as we read in other parts of, the path of, of, of Scripture, God's like, wait a second, friends. What do you all think about this idea? Humans. And what if we made them a little bit like us? There is the sense in the creation of humans that God 
shifts from this simply commanding things into existence to something that feels very collaborative. God involves in some way, the, the let us involves in some way the invitation for other voices, the invitation the, for participation, the, the sharing of God's dominion, which shouldn't surprise us then when God creates humans right here in this passage, God says that they too will share in God's dominion, that they too will participate in some way in ruling. This is a bold, subduing, it says, that, that God created everything and God is ultimately in charge, but for some very reason I don't understand, God says, I want all of you who are created, both male and female, to share in it. This is one of the most democratic passages in the Bible. God paints a picture that suggests that humans are created in God's image equally and thus should equally share in the rule over God's creation. This is very bold. What it's suggesting is that I and you and you and you and all equally, in God's eyes, have a certain amount of say over what happens in this world. So this is where it becomes practical. My question for you is, has that been your experience? (laughs) Has your experience been one where you had just as much say in what happened in this world as the person next to you, as the person in government, as the person with more money, as the person with less money? This is the, the, the problem with uh, this passage is it starts out with this beautiful ideal, this, this idea that uh, God would create everyone in God's image, that we each would have intrinsic value and intrinsic purpose, that we'd all carry this with us. And that was the picture of the original creation, but that is not how the story goes. If you follow the rest of the story, we'll get there. You're going to find a world where there is violence, where there is one person exerting power over another. Soon they'll be introduced slaves. Israelites being one of them is a story of Exodus, of breaking out of slavery. But in all of this, you're going to find one culture killing another culture, violence, power, dominion, exerted over other people, which is not the, the, the intent of this passage at all. I, um, I recently... Uh, I recently wrote a novel. Uh, I've had some friends read it. One friend said that some of the big moments in the novel were too subtle. I like subtle. Um, I think my sermons are sometimes subtle. I love it when I say something. Afterwards, someone kind of gives me a wink and was like, I got what you were really saying. You know, you didn't come out and say it, but I got it. You know, like you were, you were talking about Black Lives Matter right there. You didn't say it, but I like that. And I'm probably going to continue to do that. I think I I do subtle well. I want to take a second and not be so subtle with you all as we wrestle with this passage. We have in our scripture an ideal. And it's an ideal that is beautiful. That all of humanity are created equal and in God's image. This is an ideal that is embedded in the formation of our country as well. Go back to 
You know, Genesis is a founding document of the Hebrew and Jewish faith. Go back to our founding document, and it's, it, it's very, very similar. In fact, they pull from each other, and it's simply that God created all of humanity and that we have intrinsic or in, inalienable rights. Um, you go to our Pledge of Allegiance, and it, and it says uh, liberty and justice for all. But if you go back even further to, to one of the most eloquently and often quoted passages, the Declaration of Independence, a, a, found, a founding document, uh, our genesis, so to speak, as a country, it says this, and it pulls from the Genesis account. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I wonder where they got that idea. They say they're self-evident, but they're actually pulling from Scripture, uh, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm sure you're familiar with this. I remember um, when I read it for the first time, uh, probably in elementary school, it was taught in some class. And, and even then, at a, at a young age, I thought, this is beautiful. And if you had told me that when this was written, a claim that people have unalienable rights, that, that all people were created and, and have a, by, unalienable, which means you can't take it away. That there is just like intrinsic value, worth, purpose, and rights to every human being. If you had told me that when that was written, when that was proclaimed, that America was also shipping thousands and thousands of Africans from their homeland to be slaves in America... I wouldn't have guessed that as a young person reading this for the first time. W- you know, in elementary school, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been like, you know, when this was written, you know, at, leading up to the writing of the Declaration of Independence, there was, um, I think, let me see if I find my notes, 400,000 slaves had been abducted from Africa at this point for the transatlantic slave trade. After this was written, at least another 100,000 still wore before they shut down the slave trade. And then for, what, generations later, people were, continue to be owned by another. And yet they said, every person has inalienable rights. Yeah, right. So let me not be subtle. I believe all lives matter. But I also believe it's a terrible phrase to use. Because based on our history, All never seems to really mean all. We've been saying all lives matter since this country was born and it didn't mean anything. We said it it when we simultaneously abducted Africans from their homeland. We said it all are created in the image of God while holding our black brothers and sisters as slaves. We said it as America, they would shout it. All lives matter when they said separate but equal. Separate but not equal. So... I'm not interested in saying all lives matter. I'm not interested in you coming at me with all lives matter. Um, maybe you say it, maybe you really mean it, and I'm going to be completely honest with you. I believe you. When I say all lives matter, I really mean it. But here's what I want you to hear, and here's something I truly believe. It's not helpful. And other people don't hear it that way because our country has been saying all lives matter since the Declaration of Independence, and it has never meant that all lives actually matter. As the biblical story unfolds, we see a world that is short of what God had asked it to be. Uh, In chapter 3, the fall happens and violence begins to spread uh, through the second generation with Cain and Abel. And so God begins to respond to the world not as it should be. Um, First, God creates laws in the people of Israel. 
And when you study these laws, you realize that God is creating laws intentionally designed to address the fact that not all lives seem to matter to everyone. There's these beautiful laws around how to treat foreigners, how to care for the immigrant, how to uh, um, uh, help people who are caught in generational poverty. If if we followed God's laws around uh, economics, there would be no generational poverty because every so many years, it'd be a complete wiping away of debt. An immense amount of laws around what it means to, to kind of overcome the fact that we don't live as people then and now as if every life matters. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is, of course, people don't follow laws. So then come along the prophets, and they really challenge people, and they, they speak out. They, they challenge the king. They challenge the people. And the prophets challenge people really on two things. One, they failed to love God, one of the commandments. And two, they failed to love their neighbor. They failed to care for the immigrant. They, cared, they failed to care for the widow, the orphan, you know. And, and, and so they're naming the people who happen to be in the margins and saying, we should do better in those areas. And they would challenge the people with that. And it's that passage, that was one of those types of passages that Jesus quotes when he begins his ministry. Jesus gets up. Um, he's at his hometown. There's nothing worse than having to share your faith, uh, uh, share your passion for justice than with your hometown, uh, with your family, especially if they don't agree. Um, this is a struggle, and I know many of you are struggling with it right now. Um, Jesus is in his hometown, and he's not going to be well accepted. You know, the prophet's not welcome in his own town, is the, the old proverb, and it was certainly true for Jesus. He gets up, and he's asked to read. You know, the, the, the sort of the, the son has come home, and now he's this rabbi, so let's let him get up front and read. And he opens it up to one of the prophets that often pointed out the various places where people were failing to provide justice, failing to live as if people, everyone actually mattered. And Jesus reads this and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I won't won't get into the year of the Lord's favor, but I encourage you to look into it. Jesus reads this. He talks about the poor and the prisoner, the blind and the oppressed. And he says, I've, I've come to make their lives better. And then he says, he, he's quoting Isaiah, who's talking about this future Messiah who's going to come and do this. And Jesus says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus says, it's me. I've come to do this very work. When God came and, and, and chose to create humans, God said, let us. I don't know exactly what that means, but there's an element of collaboration there. There's an element of community. There's an element of relationship. God, God in relationship with God's self, with divine beings, with wisdom, whatever it is, there's a mystery there. There's an element of community. And God says, in this community that I represent as this divine, un, very hard to understand God, let us create humans. And, and I think we are never more human than when we follow that example. Instead of saying, let there be, and let there be, and let there be, and trying to force one thing or another to happen, what if we step back and said, hey, let us? What if we did this? What if we found a way to work together, to collaborate, to share ideas? We are never more human. We are never more accentuating the, crea- the, the image of God in us than when we enter into relationship. 
And when we do, we meet the God, the image of God in another, and in another, and in another. And we find in that process, we meet God as well. That's why Jesus said, if you've been wondering where I'm at, and you didn't know, when you gave someone something to drink, I was there. When you visited someone in prison, I was there. When you gave clothes to someone who needed it, I was there. I am there when you enter into compassionate, justice-oriented relationships with other humans. Let's pray. God, we come before you, and uh, Lord, we know that we are created in your image, but sometimes we fall short of that. Um, We know that as humans, we often fall, that I fall short of it, but we collectively fall short of it, and so we come and we repent our sins. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves, uh, we have not loved our, 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 our black neighbors as ourselves, our indigenous neighbors. We, Lord, we come and we humbly repent and we trust that you can forgive us and renew us for a life that can be lived on purpose. So Lord, we come to this conversation humbly. We invite each other into that relationship and into that conversation. We follow your example by saying, let us. So Lord, let us. Help us to be your people called by your name for the mission you've called us to. We give you thanks and praise in your name.